The Energy Gang is brought to you by Vertilla Energy. Vertilla is leading the energy transition with the Atlas of 100% Renewable Energy. If you stay with us to the end of the episode, you're going to hear about how this atlas is being used to map out the clean energy transition. So stay tuned for that. We're also brought to you by SunGrow. SunGrow is a leading provider of PV inverter solutions around the world. It has 120 gigawatts installed in total around the globe, and it is focusing on decarbonizing its own operations and decarbonizing the world. Find out more about the future of inverters and solar and storage at sungrowpower.com. We're also brought to you by SeaPower. SeaPower's latest book, Demand-Side Energy Management in the Time of covid takes a peek into eight of the biggest commercial industries in North America and reveals key energy management strategies that successful organizations have used during the wildest year of this young century. Authored by 19 sea power experts with a combined total of more than 300 years of energy experience, the book is a must-have resource for any commercial and industrial organization striving to optimize energy use and spend in 2021. Visit thecpowerway.com slash 2021 to download this new book or just follow the link in the show notes. This is The Energy Gang, weekly debates and discussions about the fast-changing world of energy. I'm Stephen Lacey. Welcome. This week, climate change is certainly the most urgent issue we face, but should it be formally declared an emergency? There's a real debate over the label in the U.S., and it has a very real impact on what the president can do. Then, what could be the counter-impact? Changes across the energy economy are set to accelerate. If we don't do it right, are we facing a yellow vest protest movement like we saw recently in France? And last, a new study shows that some cities are grossly underreporting their carbon emissions. Do cities even have the resources to do this right? I got my two best resources right here with me. Catherine Hamilton, Jigger Shaw, they're my regular co-hosts. Catherine Hamilton is over there in Arlington, Virginia. She's the co-founder and chair of 38 North Solutions. Hello, Catherine. Hi, I've been riveted to the trial. Oh, I know. It's hard to get any work done this week. Jigger, what about you? Are you getting any work done? Yeah, I've basically pushed it all off until the evening. And then like I go onto YouTube and watch the summary videos or something. And so like, I'm sort of like getting the cliff notes. But uh, the last video I saw from yesterday had um, like they, they had like a blue dot for where that police officer was leading the a mob away from the Senate chamber and then the red dot, which was the mob. And then I think it was like a yellow dot for like where Vice President Pence was. And it was scary, scary stuff. Yeah, I think you're referencing this compilation video put together by the House impeachment managers um, showing exactly what was happening, the play by play as these uh, insurrectionists stormed the Capitol building. Uh, some of this footage was new, very scary it shows you just how close they were to the vice president and, and these lawmakers. Well, and like, and you know, like I moved to DC in 1996 and it, it, in that year you were still capable of actually driving on Pennsylvania Avenue in front of the white house today. The whole thing is shut off like for seven blocks. It would be, it would be inconceivable to me to like think that that same thing is going to happen to the Capitol. Like, I mean, you know, like you could go all the way up to the steps and like, you know, take photographs with a photographer or whatever it is you wanted to do. Like my sense is all of that's going away and that's sad. Yeah. And for those of us who spend a lot of time in the Capitol and meeting with people, it's horrifying to think that, you know, that it would be unsafe in any way. That's Jigger Shaw, by the way. He's our 
co-host and the president of Generate Capital. So we're talking about one major political emergency here in the U.S. Let's talk about another emergency, the climate emergency. The Secretary General of the United Nations, Antonio Guterres, said every country should declare an emergency until carbon dioxide stops building up in the atmosphere. 38 countries have done so, but the move is often symbolic. Here in the U.S., it could actually open up a vast range of powers for the president, many of them through the military. This has been a growing priority for environmental groups. Grist reported in December that more than 380 of them sent a letter to Joe Biden's transition team, urging him to issue an executive order mobilizing the National Emergencies Act. And now two House lawmakers, Earl Blumenauer, Congressman Earl Blumenauer and Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, have teamed up with Senator Bernie Sanders in the Senate to introduce the National Climate Emergency Act of 2021. Catherine, before we get into that act, what is this power and how could it be used? Yes, it is indeed an incredible tool that the president has in his or her her toolkit. And remember, as you mentioned, this is not insane. The 38 countries have done this and nine and a half million people in the U.S. are already in communities that have declared a national climate emergency. That includes me in Montgomery County. There you go. So, So it shouldn't feel too scary to you. So the... The issue is that you can declare a national emergency, and and this happened under the last administration, remember, with the wall, where Trump said, there's a national emergency, I'm going to build a wall, and I'm going to move all this money um, out of existing programs, usually from the Department of Defense, and I'm going to build a wall. And it created real problems and, and caused a lot of all lawsuits. The ACLU was suing to, you know, this cannot be the way we treat emergencies just based on, you know, your political priorities and your policy priorities. You shouldn't just be able to declare an emergency. So last session in 2019, this group of members and senators introduced a resolution, and that would be non-binding. That would just say, you should do this, resolve that there are all these reasons that you should declare a climate emergency, but they did not really want this to happen under Trump for obvious reasons. And also because there were these lawsuits percolating about, like, when would you declare an emergency? Why would you do that? So now they've introduced a bill. And what the National Emergencies Act does, it's is, and they've laid out 35 findings of why this is should be considered an emergency. It opens up about 130 different statutes and ways to move funding and to really put things into place. And some of these can be just moving funding from one program to another uh, for a priority reason and and for an actual solution to whatever the emergency situation is. And then the other thing it can do is then you could use the Defense Production Act. And what that does is really declare an imminent domain over a company where you would pay the same market value for a, a different product that they would produce in the service of this emergency. And this bill not only lays out all of the reasons for a climate emergency, but it also does something very important as a backstop. It creates a reporting mechanism to make sure that the president doesn't abuse this authority, to make sure that all of these authorities are used in a way that are appropriate to solving the emergency that has been declared. So does it effectively put us on a wartime footing, Catherine? I mean, what does this all, if, if it's done right, what does this ideally allow us to do? 
in totality. Well, this really just opens up a lot more tools to the administration. It tells the Biden administration, you have a lot more that you can do if you can't get all this stuff done through reconciliation. And you're not going to be able to do a lot of things through reconciliation. If you can't do it all through executive action with what you with the powers you already have, there are a whole bunch of other tools you can use and Congress is behind you on that. And so I think it would be helpful to, for example, Majority Leader Schumer, uh, to be able to to backstop Biden and help him get his priorities done by creating and declaring what really is a climate crisis as an emergency. Jager, I know you have strong opinions on this. If this is actually initiated, if these uh, emergency powers are initiated, what would make them effective? Well, remember, we talked about this, right, with Bill McKibben's wartime footing piece. And so... um, I'm I'm in complete agreement that we need to take a wartime footing on this, right? I mean, re- eliminating 50% of carbon emissions, which is what the IPCC has said that we need to do by 2030, seems almost impossible unless you take a wartime footing. So like, so I totally get why we should do this. I just don't think that we should do it unless we're actually going to do all of it. Right. Like, I don't understand why you would declare a climate emergency if you're not actually prepared to say all cement in the country is now going to be CCUS, right? That we're going to actually do carbon capture and utilization and we're going to create negative cement, which the technology of which has been around for 20 years. But, you know, cement manufacturers have not really done it. Right. Or, you know, like figuring out how we actually like you know, take steel and actually decarbonize it, right? We have 100-page reports out of the Department of Energy on how to do all of this stuff, right? So it's not like we don't have it. But the question is, like, once you declare a climate emergency, are you actually going to do it? The other challenge I have is that I'm not a big fan of the Defense Department doing all this stuff, right? So it's one thing to steal their money. That's fine. It's another thing, like, when you think about what we did in Afghanistan and Iraq, my sense is, is that we paid a lot of money to the Department of Defense to try to keep the peace and do things that USAID should have done or the State Department should have done. And I think they did it badly as a result, right? And so part of my concern here is that I just think that once you decide to do this, you have to have a plan. One last point I'd make is that when this occurred under FDR for uh, World War II, he was actually planning for the use of the Defense Production Act and all of these tools four years before Pearl Harbor, right? He actually had an auto executive say, when this occurs, what could we do to ramp up production of airplanes? What can we do to ramp up production of tanks? The whole thing was planned out and figured out, and he was waiting for that catalytic moment, which happened to be Pearl Harbor, to actually execute on all the plans. It's not clear to me that we've actually got these secret documents everywhere within the government somewhere around exactly how we would dramatically reduce carbon emissions. And unless we have those in place, I just think it's really politically um, uh, fraught uh, to be able to, you know, do this first. So as we get closer toward Jigger's interpretation, Catherine, I'm assuming the legal vulnerabilities get much bigger. What are some of those legal vulnerabilities? Yeah. So one thing is like, is this a real emergency? So that's why they laid out 
35 findings that were pretty significant of why this is a national emergency in the, in the bill. But you're right that there are a, a couple of other things because, as, as I mentioned, the ACLU has been suing the Trump administration for the wall and declaring that an emergency. So what this bill does is that it does propose some reforms to the National Emergencies Act to make sure that there is much more accountability, that there is oversight by Congress, that there is a report requirement that says, all right, what have you done? Is it still an emergency? Are you really getting done what you need to. I think that this is important for a couple of reasons. One is that the original resolution was as a result of activists in Oregon who really pushed Congressman Blumenauer to say, we want this. We are your constituents and we want you to do this. So this was really a grassroots effort that grew up out of that. Um, The other thing is it really does show the administration that there is support for this. We have this, we've got your back. If you want to do something big and bold, here you go. Here's what you can do. And these are all the different things that you can open up. It doesn't have to be defense. It can be in in a lot of other programs. There are over 130 statutes and abilities for this to open up. And you can choose to go the defense route or not. But, you know, there are a lot of different ways you can do it. And I think that, you know, it does backstop the Biden administration. So as they move forward, they don't have to do it now. But they know now there are a lot of tools, then they've known that for a while, that there are tools that they can use. But this just continues to build support. I think it's important to continue to do that if they want to backstop him and show him that there is another path forward. Is this just political posturing or do we get the sense that the Biden administration is going to seriously consider this and give some oxygen to this emergency act? Well, Kerry is going to be on the hook when we go to renegotiate the climate accord. They're going to have to he's going to have to show that we're doing something. So I think there's going to be pressure for them to definitely consider this. Um, And I don't know how far down the path they are, but certainly we're going to have to prove as a nation that we're actually acting. Yeah, I think the fact that they're introducing this legislation and been so thoughtful about it is super important. So I'm not anti the legislation per se. I guess what I'm saying is just simply that like, I think that by supporting it, you're actually saying that you're willing to do the next 20 steps. I think the notion that you're saying, I'm going to support this legislation so that if and when we need this power, we can use it seems hollow to me because I think it's pretty obvious that we need the power now. So like, so I mean, I don't, I I think that that if you're going to support the legislation, you actually have to support the follow through that comes from it. And I think when you think about where Joe Manchin is sitting on a lot of this stuff, right, Joe Manchin's line has always been, you know, I want to provide incentives, I don't want to, you know, penalize uh, high carbon industries, right. But once you go down the emergency pathway, you do have to penalize uh, you know, like high carbon industries. That's how it works, right? You accelerate the shutdown of coal plants. You accelerate the decarbonization of steel and cement. You do the things that have the most impact the fastest you know, way possible. And I just, I, I just don't like, I just think we, some of this stuff was played out under Obama where Obama was like, if you don't pass a cap and trade bill, I'm going to use the authority at EPA. And, you know, like it ended up not really like being as big of a stick as people thought it would be. So I just, that that's all I'm saying is I think once you support the climate emergency legislation, I don't think it's a negotiating tool. I think it's actually a tool of the executive branch to say, you know, now we have to follow through on all these hundreds of things. 
So what we do know is that a lot of people are on board for this approach to policymaking. The United Nations sponsored this very creative survey for over a million people that was embedded in uh, mobile gaming and Angry Birds and Words with Friends on their phones. And so instead of ads, they saw a survey about climate change and whether it's an emergency. And um, uh, 1.2 million people across 50 countries took the survey in 17 languages. And overwhelmingly, they said that climate change is an emergency and they supported pretty aggressive policy to do something about it. So this has broad support. Catherine, as John Kerry goes into international climate negotiations, what does he need to have to be relevant given this context? Yeah, I mean, he needs to show that the U.S. is turning everything toward solving the issue and dealing with the crisis. And so whatever they can, whatever he can take to show, whether it's what they've been able to do so far, you know, when he goes, what they've been able to do to date, whether it's through reconciliation, appropriations, executive action. But this would be a really good thing to have in his back pocket. Before we go on, let's take a quick break here and talk about our supporters of the show. We're brought to you by C-Power. C-Power has a new book out. It's called Demand Side Energy Management in the Time of COVID, and it takes a peek into eight of the biggest commercial industries in North America to reveal energy management strategies that successful organizations have used during this very wild year. The book breaks down the demand response and demand management programs available in five of the nation's open energy markets, as well as those offered by several of the largest electric utilities in U.S. deregulated markets. It's authored by 19 Sea Power experts, and boy, oh boy, do they have a combined total of a lot of years, 300 years of energy experience. So this is a must-have resource for any commercial industrial organization striving to optimize energy use in 2021. Visit the show notes. We've got a link right there where you can get the book or go to the Seapower Way, thecpowerway.com slash 2021. We're also brought to you by SunGrow. SunGrow is the leading global supplier of inverter solutions for renewables. It's also a leader in decarbonization. SunGrow joined the RE100 with a commitment to switch its global power needs to 100% renewable energy by 2028. And you can bet those renewable energy projects are going to be powered by SunGrow inverters. Beyond ensuring its factories are powered by solar, SunGrow has also invested in electric buses to move its staff around facilities in China, and that earned SunGrow China's national standard for green factories. SunGrow is innovating in its own operations and innovating out in the field to build cutting-edge solar projects everywhere. To learn more about SunGrow's products, go to sungrowpower.com. One of the big changes from President Obama to President Biden is the focus on workers as part of the energy transition. Obama, of course, focused on clean energy jobs, but he wasn't forced to fully grapple with the harsh reality of phasing down entire sectors of the energy economy, or at least starting that process. In one of Biden's hallmark executive orders from January, he's clearly putting an emphasis on workers and the just transition. So his team is now thinking through what this means for policymaking and transitioning large swaths of of the the energy economy. It sounds simple enough in an official document, but how are we actually going to deal with the pain and social conflict that will likely bubble out of this transition? The National Academies of Science has a massive new report that comes to a conclusion that we talk about a lot here, that the transition will largely pay for itself. But at the press conference for the report, the authors had a warning. 
the U.S. risks a backlash movement if people feel left behind. They called it a yellow vest movement for America, referencing the protests that erupted in France after President Macron raised gas taxes. So might we see those conditions here under a Biden administration? Catherine, remind us what happened in France. What was the yellow vest movement? Yeah, I reached out to my friend Laurent Sogalin, who is from France, uh, to ask him a little bit more about this. And it's very complicated, although you can see a lot of the parallels. So this started in 2018, as you said, because of an initiative to raise the fuel tax. And these were folks who were lower middle class, upper lower class. They had jobs. They just were lower paying jobs. They lived out in the suburbs that were really not getting the support that they needed from the government. Their main asset is their car because they have to get to jobs where they are. And yet they still feel invisible. You know, things are moving forward in the economy in different ways, and they are invisible. And yet there's, they're in some ways, the entire backbone and support of the economy. And so the yellow vest allowed them to be visible. And um, they could buy a gilet jaune for $3 the US in any gas station and put it on and really get out and try to demonstrate we are visible. You need to think about us. Do not punish us for something that you want uh, on the policy front. And I think that um, that is partly, you know, what we see moving forward in the U.S. too, maybe not in the same way, because the Gijon movement then became sort of this lightning rod for the far left, anti-GMO, anti-5G, anti-smart meters, anti-vaccination, anti-police, anti-globalization, everything anti. And all of these politicians kind of glommed on. It didn't really have great messaging. It was leaderless. And, you know, it really was doomed because of that. And they didn't have a clear message other than we don't want the gas tax. And then it just kind of fell apart in a number of ways. Um, I think we're in a different place in the U.S. Um, And so, you know, you can look at the yellow vest movement as far left or far right. People kind of see in it what they want. But I do think it is a warning sign that, you know, we don't want to leave whole sectors behind um, in, you know, in crafting our energy future. Well, what we see is that these movements tend to take shape in surprising ways because of the way people mobilize online and the way that different factions and protest movements or groups of angry people can come together under a common cause. Jiggered, are there any conditions in the U.S. that lead you to believe that something like this could happen if a lot of people in the fossil fuel economy or in the industrial sector are angry about where the, the, the economy is going? Yeah, I'd argue we've already had a yellow vest movement here in the U.S., that we invented it, right? The reason West Virginia has been so deep red is because they are yellow vesting all day, right? Like, ultimately, yellow vest movements, to me, are defined by people who already have a job, who believe that the transition are is actually hurting their current job, right? These are coal jobs. These are, you know, uh, today, fracking jobs, right? The XL pipeline jobs that, you know, just came up the last couple of weeks, right, out of Biden's executive orders and, you know, decisions. And so, like, these are yellow vest movements, right? And they have had huge impacts. When you think about, you know, like, I think West Virginia probably could have thrown the election to Al Gore if they would have voted for him. And so, it's one of those things where um, I think the just transition is completely different from 
um, the yellow vest movement. Like you can certainly make it a big tent, but a lot of what we've been talking about on the environmental justice side has been that there's a number of people who have been um, actively hurt by our burning of fossil fuels and have not really been allowed to participate. I think on the yellow vest side, we're talking about, you know, like for instance, I think that there was a big um, ad campaign last week from API, right, called Energy Citizens. And this is all, you know, folks from the fossil fuel you know, industry who are talking about their jobs being impacted, et cetera, right? And so so I do think this is part of the political calculus. And I do think that this is why hydrogen, CCS, uh, natural gas, um, and others like have to be treated um, not just delicately, but actually with a lot of intellectual gusto, as opposed to, I think, what we've been doing, which is saying, well, you know, we had to give the Republicans something in the Energy Act of 2020, and therefore we put some money into CCS. No, that's not true, right? I mean, people who are super smart, who actually believe that we need to decarbonize by 2050, don't believe that we can do it with 100% renewable energy. They do believe we need hydrogen, that we need CCS, that we need these other technologies. And I think that like part of avoiding a yellow vest movement in this country is avoiding some of this sort of like snide characterization that I think that we participate in as a country around, oh, we just threw some money at Republican ideas so that we could get their votes in the Energy Act of 2020. And like, no, like actually there's a lot of people who needs who need to transition and we need to figure out how those companies and those workers actually participate in the uh, transition. And and that that's what those you know compromises are about. Yeah, and we have to be super intentional about it. We can't be patronizing and say, oh, here, if we give a bunch of money to this technology, it's going to happen. What we have to make sure of is that people can see themselves in the future. Right now, there are a lot of people saying, oh, my gosh, my all these jobs are going to be shut down. They're going to take away my jobs. You know, it used to be so much simpler. I used to be able to know, you know, that my kid was going to do better than I'm doing. And now I just have no reason to believe that would be true. So we have to have a plan that is very intentional and doesn't come from the top down, but that really allows those communities to be be part of it. So there's a group um, that is kind of led by the Just Transition Fund, has a bunch of organizations involved, tribal organizations, um, organizations in Appalachia and other areas that are needing some of this help. It's called the National Economic Transition. And I, I think I've mentioned this before. They have a whole platform where they say, there are a bunch of things we have to do. One is we have to have local community-based leadership. We need restorative economic development so that we support locally owned uh, small businesses. We have to have workforce development and protect worker health because a lot of these folks have those issues. We have to do reclamation of lands that you know have been torn apart by some of these industries but that can now be used for new industry. We need to focus on infrastructure. We need to protect people from bankruptcy. And then we need coordination and access to federal resources rather than just saying, I'm from Washington, D.C. and I'm here to help, like give them the tools to be able to help themselves and help them design the future that they want. I think we're in for a real reckoning on this issue for a simple reason, and that is you see a lot of wealthy individuals who can dump money into protest movements and take um, fringe movements and make them much bigger. So. If you think about what the Mercers did, you know, those those hedge fund managers, they did to elevate the QAnon conspiracy theory and a lot of fringe conservative groups. If I were some, you know, rich person or organization with a lot of investments in fossil fuels, I'd probably be dumping money into these protest groups to try to make them bigger than they are. I mean, it seems like a perfect flashpoint to 
try to tear down the Biden administration. Well, but the thing is, is that there's actually truth to what they're putting money into, right? I mean, like, I just think it's important for us not to just view this from like some sort of um, one-dimensional view, right, of money in politics. Like, you know, having grown up in a town that was decimated by a steel mill that shut down, right, the government didn't do anything for those towns, right? Those towns are all the white anger towns that actually fueled the Trump campaign 30 years later, right? And none of those towns got any of these sort of just transition dollars to like, you know, figure things out. And they're no better than they were 30 years ago, right? And so so the the challenge is that now that we're now transitioning all these power plant towns, which is what I would call them because there's just so much property tax being paid by peaker plants and coal plants and other things, right? When they shut down, you also lose 25%, 50% of the entire city budget, right? And so all the schools, et cetera. And it is not possible for the states to actually pay for replacing all those dollars. It's it's literally not possible. It'll just bankrupt all the states, right? We were dealing with this in New York when I was working with Richard Kaufman on the Energy Star stuff. So the real question now becomes like, what do you do differently to actually bring the tax base up, right? So one thing you could do is actually build infrastructure there because they've got a lot of great infrastructure. So you could build a solar farm or a wind farm or a battery manufacturing plant or other things there to replace the tax base. There's lots of other things that you could do. But I would say that like this cultural war that we've engaged in over the last four plus years um, has not helped, right? So sometimes when you go to those cities and say, here's what we can do for you, they say, we don't want your charity. We don't want this green revolution crap. We don't want it here, right? And yes, rich people are taking advantage of the situation um, and fanning the flames, but there is an underlying truth there, which is that their way of life has been significantly disrupted since the 90s. And we really haven't done anything to address it. I completely agree. And I didn't want to make it sound like there wasn't any reality behind it. I mean, the same forces that were mobilizing people to support Trump are the same forces that would mobilize this kind of protest movement. And they're all very rooted in real pain within these communities. But you have a number of people who are very good at manipulating that pain and um, creating social unrest without actually addressing the root of the problem. Yeah, and this is not unique to the United States either. Um, the IEA just announced a global commission on people-centered clean energy transition that a bunch of the ministers of energy from countries are joining. Our um, you know, chairman, Manchin, of Senate Energy and Natural Resources is going to be part of this commission too. And, you know, countries like Spain have transitioned thousands and thousands of workers uh, away from the fossil industry into clean energy. Uh, the UK has uh, also worked really hard to do that with their coal communities. And I think there are lessons to be learned from all of those countries that have that have tried to do that. And um, I think the good news is that there are people on the ground. And if you look at the folks that are involved in this na national economic transition platform, you'll see that these are people that are in those communities trying to work from within the communities. And it appears from the folks that Biden has announced already for positions that will be thinking about this, that they also understand those community connections. And I think as long as you have people in the communities leading that, then that will prevent outside forces from coming in and saying you need to talk about your problem because these people are already trying to address it. The last question I have on this is a variation of a question we've been asking as we compare Biden's approach to Obama's approach. And that is, what did the Obama administration do right and wrong when it messaged around jobs? So it 
very rightly embraced the green jobs agenda, but then it took a lot longer to create those jobs than expected. They didn't message around. Ultimately, it was a fairly successful attempt to grow jobs in wind and solar, energy efficiency, et cetera. But it took a lot longer. They didn't message around it well. They got a lot of blowback from Republicans. And ultimately, the story was very muddled and people didn't see it as the success story that it was. What should Biden's team do differently? And what a greater challenge do they have today, given that we're now talking about transitioning communities and not just creating new jobs? Well, one of the things I'd say is that, you know, obviously the Obama administration had the Solyndra issue, so they sort of dropped it all, and then they came back to it in 2013 and all this back and forth. But one of the things I'd say is that no matter what the federal government does, the way that the United States is set up is that governors and mayors and, you know, university presidents, et cetera, have to be fully on board. And they were not fully on board under the Obama administration, right? And so there was money provided for training. There was weatherization dollars. There was all these things. But when it came to actually splicing together three or four different problems and then solving all three or four different problems with one set of solutions, they didn't really figure out how to do that, right? And so part of this is being intentional about recognizing that many of these local jurisdictions don't have the wherewithal to really bring all of the resources necessary to spend the dollars in a way that, you know, is catalytic and that multiplies uh, its impact locally. And so there's going to have to be resources around technical training and technical resources, as well as best practices and case studies and all the things that, that these, you know, because many of the towns that we're talking about have a population of, you know, 13,000 people. Like that's what the town that I grew up in that has a, you know, shut down steel mill. A lot of these coal mining towns, a lot of these uh, coal plant towns, natural gas peaker plant towns, these are not large cities. Most of them have populations that are very small. And so they don't have very large, expansive municipal governments um, to be thoughtful about the money that they're receiving. Yeah, and I think we have to be really careful not to be simplistic about it and say, oh, we'll just replace these jobs with solar jobs because there isn't necessarily a one-to-one fit. So we have to be much more nuanced and you know, location-specific about what tools are available, what the future could look like for any particular community. It may not just be solar. It may be a whole host of other things that they could be using. Let's go to the third topic. What is going on in cities? Cities, as we know, are crucial in this transition. And if you go by UN numbers, they're responsible for 60% of climate pollution. If you go by C40, a coalition of cities working to address climate change, it's 70% of climate pollution. Cities have been gauging their own emissions for years, and on that basis, trying to reduce them. So when a team of researchers at the University of Northern Arizona released a model that they've been refining for 15 years, showing cities are underreporting on an average by 18%. Well, that is causing a stir. Jigger, what do you make of this? Well, I mean, I think we should agree that cities shouldn't be collecting their own data and putting <laughs> it out there, right? I mean, the vast majority of cities are under-resourced. That's why we have the Department of Commerce, right? Department of Commerce's job for over 100 years has been to collect data on behalf of all of these players, whether it's jobs data or emissions data or other things, right? You've got NOAA, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, that does a lot of this work, right? And so my sense is is that, you know, my the, the cities would love to have a lot of help 
putting this data together and are not um, bashful about saying that they probably have holes in um, the way in which they collect data and process data. Um, so I think that would be point number one. But I think point number two is, as we talked about with Sam Brooks, uh, you know, many years ago at this, at this point about his uh, work in the city of D.C., um, cities are, are really, um, I think, flustered, uh, maybe flabbergasted is the right word, around what exactly to do about these emissions, right? It's one thing to collect the data. It's another thing to figure out what to do about it, right? I mean, when you think about um, car cities, right? And, you know, should you get people out of their cars and into transit? Well, you know, you've got uh, the pandemic now. So, you know, should you be mandating that real estate folks do things differently, like local law 97 in New York City? Well, that's super hard because real estate owners are the largest donors to mayoral campaigns. And so my sense is, is that part of this is, is trying to figure out um, from cities, like what what they should be collecting differently, who should be processing that data, and then, you know, what can they realistically do about their emissions? Because, you know, from their perspective, they're like, you know, dense living is actually uh, producing far lower carbon emissions per unit, you know, per person than suburban living. So, you know, they they are championing the fact that people should be living in more dense uh, sort of situations. But, um, but I, I think I think cities are generally ill-equipped to be able to to handle this problem by themselves. Catherine, you heard some pushback about this research. What did you hear? Yeah, I spoke with Angie Fife, the executive director, and Tom Harrod, one of the other folks who works at ICLE, which is the International Council for Local Environmental Initiatives, which is like local governments for sustainability. And they've been working for decades on coming up with some kind of way, a methodology to measure greenhouse gases at a community level. And what they said was like, this tool is great. It should be very complementary to what we're doing. And what they're doing is they've established a U.S. community protocol for greenhouse gases. It's an industry standard that is very policy driven. So it's a software tool that cities and counties use. They develop an inventory of all their buildings, where everything is going and, you know, And that is linked to an understanding of what the greenhouse gas emissions are of those. And they track their progress. And there are about 785 jurisdictions now using it. But what that does is it links it to a policy over which a city or county can have control. So for example, um, it's very locally focused on buildings like combustion in buildings. How can you change that out? How can you um, increase your codes or efficiency standards? So it's very much linked to policy and you measure it from that level, from an inventory standard. And they said, this other tool is looking at the air, measuring those. That would be a very good complementary tool. So they saw this as not an either or, but something that they could collectively work on. And that would give cities and counties continued control, even if they're not able to control all of the emissions within their environments because emissions travel, um, they would still be able to understand what did they really have control over? What policies are they going to be able to put in place to reduce it? um, And then track those based on this tool that they have. Kevin Gurney, the lead researcher on the, the model and on the paper, said, echoed what Jigger said, which is cities shouldn't really have to track this. It's like, um, asking cities to do their own forecast weather forecasting or run their own weather satellites that's a job we leave to the meteorological experts it's a job for atmospheric scientists um so Catherine does this like solution that you talked about does it 
Does it help at all? I mean, how are we supposed to know if cities are having an impact? It feels like a very difficult situation. No, I think it's really important for cities to have tools too, because otherwise, why would they bother if they just think someone else is measuring it? I mean, this is a way for them to get an inventory, a measurement of like what's out there in our city. What can we do about it? What are the policies we can put into place? What are the actions that we can take to really make a difference? And then this other tool can also help them measure. But I don't see why you would want to take away this ability and this industry standard for communities to be able to move forward. Yeah, I don't think it's about taking it away. I think it's more about trying to figure out, you know, like we talked about with the last topic, like how the cities actually use this data um, to get the political sort of buy-in to be able to actually create all the jobs that are capable of being created, right? I mean, I think that ultimately this is all a, a matter of figuring out how to get consensus so that we can actually, you know, take natural inertia that exists everywhere where people don't want to make any changes and actually, you know, pass the regulatory mandates necessary to to cause changes to occur, right? And doing it based in data so that the stakeholders around the table believe that they, you know, had an ability to to weigh in, to, to provide their own feedback as to, you know, how best to solve these problems and then and then to move forward more confidently, right? So when the C40 comes out and says cities have done this and that in reducing their emissions, how are we supposed to read into that? Well, I usually just delete it and don't read into <laughs> it at all. I mean, I just think the notion that like this information is any way level set is ridiculous. It's sort of like saying, you know, food waste, if it was its own emissions, are the eighth largest emitter in the world. And then the problem is the boundary conditions are different, right? So land use, when people say, well, land use is 38% of all emissions. Okay, well, that's completely true. But it's like double counted with like the cities like being 75% of all carbon emissions, right? Because a lot of that includes all the scope three emissions that are generated from, you know, 800 miles away, but are actually being shipped into the city from coal plants that the city is driving electricity from or or trash, right? So like, I mean, I think the work that the C40 is doing is fantastic. But when people say they've reduce their emissions by 12% or this group has reduced their emissions by 2% or this group has agreed to decarbonize by 2050. What I care more about is, you know, the entire system and the federal policy and the state policy and like, what are we actually like modeling and how does the announcements that they made like model into whether we're actually reducing carbon emissions by 50% by 2030, which is what the IPCC has said that we need to do. So, Catherine, if Jigger is taking those press releases and crumpling them up and throwing them in the trash, are you secretly going back and taking them back out and uncrumpling them and tacking them to the wall? Ironing them. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the this uh, ICLE works very closely within the construct of the IPCC, and it's really important for them to be an international voice on how do cities really account for what they're doing. And, you know, if you step back for a second and think about 2020 and say you have commercial buildings in a town that are measured that you're just measuring the air and all the emissions went down in 2020 because people weren't driving and working in buildings um, and if you're using the model that NIST and NOAA and University of Arizona are using you would think oh we're doing all the right stuff but when you look at the inventory that's not the case of course so I really do think you have to have both you have to have the ability to say all right what are we really doing differently and what are the policies that we need to put into place to meet that standard 
and also measure the air and see what's really going on. So I, I really think it's complimentary. I think um, crumpling up one isn't going to help us. Oh, on, well, I'm on not the whole crumpling thing. up either. I totally agree with you, Catherine. I mean, Stephen asked me about press releases and like, you know, those are the ones I'm crumpling. Like I like in general, I totally agree with you that we need both. And, and I think that getting the cities the tools that they need are super important. I just think that that when you think about the level of ambition that is going to be required, whether it's a climate emergency or whether it's yellow jackets or whether it's data collection, like we're not even close to the level of ambition necessary to meet the IPCC piece, right? And so now the question becomes, how do we take all of these tools and all of these pronouncements and all of these regulations and give people the backbone that it will take to actually help them help them their own communities? I think every study that we've ever reviewed, whether it's rewiring America around electrifying everything or whether it's you know the UC Berkeley study or whatever else, shows that this is going to create millions upon millions of jobs, right? But yet, Yet we still don't have the backbone at a time when you have 10 million people that are out of work since pre the pandemic, right? And so like the only way to get everyone back to work that I see is implementing all these solutions at scale and the mayors have a critical role in making that happen. And so I think they need all the tools that they need. I just don't think that empty press releases around well, here's what we've accomplished. And then you're like, wait a second, when we actually put that into context, that's only one, you know, 42nd of what we actually need to do to actually combat climate change. Like, it's just, it lacks context. Let's wrap it up here. Free electrons now. Catherine, what's your free electron this week? So I was lobbied. Uh, I think we were all lobbied on Twitter, <laughs> actually. It was a group lobby. Uh, CLI, the Clean Energy Leadership Institute, if you want something really romantic to do on Valentine's Day, you should apply for this program. It's an amazing program. Um, look into it, follow them on Twitter, and they'll never tell me that I didn't do anything for them. Well, um, <laughs> j- j- just to clarify what CLI does, they provide networking opportunities and um, like professional development opportunities for people who are early in their clean energy careers. Fantastic program. Well, and we and we push almost all of our young folks at Generate Capital to apply because we think it's such an extraordinary program and the mentorship is, you know, just really amazing. Yes, absolutely. I had one other thing, which is that, of course, I was looking at two different reports. One was that the that FERC did their 2020 year-end report that showed that renewables are 78% of the new generating capacity and should be 30% of capacity by 2025. I mean, it's wind is doubling gas easily. Meanwhile, back at EIA, which is Jigger's favorite organization, they've basically said that renewables will double by 2050 and be 42%. Now that is uh, generation as opposed to capacity. FERC was saying generating capacity and this is generation, but uh, certainly, you know, their EIA is saying natural gas generation will be the same by 2050. Coal and nuclear will be down by 50%. But based on EIA, we have a lot of work to do. Well, that that's a given. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, you know, I have to say our friends at EIA have come a long way. So kudos to EIA for coming a long way. Jigger, what's your free electron? So I created a bit of a brouhaha on LinkedIn this week um, when I uh, copied a press release from Amazon on um, their purchase of a thousand natural gas engines from Cummins and Westport um, for their heavy trucks. And I, I think that like, 
you know, one of the things I would say is those are mostly going to be fueled by renewable natural gas. And what's interesting to me is that when you read the California Air Resources Board work on their low carbon fuel standard work, the vast majority of carbon emissions that have come from heavy trucks have come from biofuels, renewable diesel, from ethanol, from uh, from renewable natural gas. And so part of what I'm like noticing and figuring out is while Amazon has made huge pronouncements around electric vehicles, right? A hundred thousand electric delivery vans ordered from Rivian and all the other things. I think they and many others are recognizing that those products are not currently in the market today. So they're buying, um, you know, a thousand, uh, products that are available in the market this week, uh, to be able to decarbonize their heavy truck transportation emissions. And I think a lot of us are going to have to figure out how all this stuff fits in within a systems thinking process. Cause I think there's a lot of folks who are like, it's electric or nothing. And my sense is, is that what carbs data shows is the vast majority of decarbonization in their transportation emissions has come from biofuels. What is a brouhaha on LinkedIn? Like I, I assume it's, it's a lot more polite than Twitter. <laughs> It, well, it's it's, it's totally. definitely more polite, but I had like hundreds of comments and like, you know, all sorts of people saying that, you know, like I hate America, and like, <laughs> you know, that like that, you know, like that, that no one should like, you know, that turn any waste products into renewable natural gas. It's all part of the same scheme. And like, I do think that we're going to have to come to grips with um what is actually reducing carbon emissions in 2021 and what might reduce carbon emissions by 2030 or 2035. And, you know, I think for a lot of these big corporations, they actually want to make a difference now. They don't want to wait until, you know, they can order a hundred Tesla semis, which they can't today. Um, And so, so I think there's just a tremendous amount of complexity around how these large corporations are figuring out how to decarbonize their um, transportation emissions, particularly Amazon, where their transportation emissions have gone way up during the pandemic because, you know, people are ordering a lot more from them. So last week I shared a story about a solved mystery over dead Russian hikers many decades ago. And as I was reading the news this week, a new mystery popped up more directly related to energy. And in this one is in Montana. In 2016 and 2017, there were a series of outages that no one could explain along uh, transmission lines going from Montana to Washington State. And the utility, Northwestern Energy, tried to figure out what was happening, and they couldn't figure it out. And eventually, what they realized were that thousands and thousands of ravens were flocking to the transmission towers and pooping all over the wires and uh, causing the, the wires to fail. And it created these fault lines along, on, along the wires. And they, they didn't know what was happening because the ravens would actually flock at night. And so no one was monitoring the line. So they would send a helicopter out or a, or a truck out and they couldn't see the ravens during the day. But then at night, all the ravens would come and then start pooping all over the wires. So it took them a long time to figure it out. Uh, once they did, they, they didn't just deploy like sprayers. They had to deploy helicopters to to wash off all the poop. That's how many ravens there were. So one one um, person who represented Northwestern Energy said it was like a Hitchcock movie. So if if you you know are are a consumer and you see an unexpected outage, um, sometimes you know we all want to blame the utility, but sometimes the utility is just 
dealing with poop, and so we have to give them a little bit of leeway. Well, the, oh my God. the transmission lines that were getting affected were the ones from Coal Strip. So I think the Ravens were actually saying that carbon emissions were too high and that they should <laughs> shut down the Coal Strip like facility and they should actually you know switch to renewable energy so i support the ravens oh my god this is like the 21st century version of like a poe versus hitchcock smackdown (laughs) and that's gonna do it thanks for being here the energy gang is a production of postscript audio ingrid lobet is our senior editor Catherine Hamilton and Jigger Shah are my co-hosts. I'm the executive producer. If you want to show your support, hit us up on Twitter. Send out a recommendation to your friends and colleagues. And give us a review where you get your podcasts. And of course, we can be found anywhere you get your podcasts. Thanks a lot for being here. I'm Stephen Lacey. This is The Energy Gang. And now for some bonus content. As we head deeper into 2021, we're looking at the dramatic ways that COVID has accelerated or could further accelerate the energy transition. Many governments right now are investing massive sums of stimulus money in energy infrastructure. Sara Kuyala is the head of business development at Vertzilla. You had heard her at the end of last episode. She's been digging into where those stimulus dollars are going. And given the rapid cost reductions she's seen in renewables, she thought there might be more going into clean energy. It was rather surprising to see how much of the stimulus money is still being spent on uh, the traditional inflexible uh, energy infrastructure that is out there. About $72 billion from America's first stimulus package went to fossil fuels. So what would happen if all of that money went to carbon-free investments instead? Sara and her team wanted to find out. They honed in on the state of Texas to see how that would change decarbonization plans. What would happen if Texas received a good portion of the stimulus money? You modeled out 10% of the fossil fuel stimulus money uh, from the COVID response. What would happen if Texas received that, that amount of money and why 10%? Yeah, we chose 10% because that uh, that corresponds well to the size of the Texan economy uh, in comparison to the whole of United States. So there was no no more mag- magic in that. Uh, but it's a it's a nice nice demonstration, and and Texas of course is is already quite far far ahead of the energy transition, uh, and and they have quite a big amount of renewable energy in the state. Uh, but with that. 10% of the of the stimulus money, if that was spent on, on renewable energy investments, it would actually get the state some something like 10 gigawatts of new wind, uh, wind energy capacity. Uh, again, uh, uh, taking, taking the energy transition forward. Texas is the country's largest producer of oil, but it also has extremely favorable conditions for wind and solar. It is a world leader in development of those resources, and some areas boast world-leading capacity factors and record low costs. When SARA's team took the stimulus spending and allocated all of it to renewables, it added another 30% of new renewable energy capacity to the Texas system. But to go even even further in the energy transition, in te- we, we would need to see in the Texan power system also a lot more energy storage uh, and a lot more flexible generation capacity. Today and in the near term years, that flexible generation capacity would be still running on natural gas. But later on, as the renewable energy capacity would increase even further, 
that surplus renewable energy could be utilized uh, as excess electricity in power to x facilities uh, producing synthetic fuels which again would be used in transportation and on those flexible power plants making the whole system carbon neutral this is a dark moment for many a lot of people's lives have been upended uh, many people don't have jobs the businesses have uh, been thrown into turmoil supply chains have been reoriented um, in this moment of a lot of dark news this kind of analysis can feel very inspiring do you do you get inspired by the the conclusions of this kind of modeling in this report i think this kind of modeling and the work that that our team does it's it's super motivating for me um, I discuss with uh, with our customers, uh, with the energy community, uh, almost on a daily basis, and I I see that even though energy transition is on is a hot topic uh, that we all recognize that is is with us, and and a lot of us do do see that the renewable energy sources are the way to go, uh, but there is still quite a bit of. Uh, uh, varying opinions and and also uncertainty uh, among the energy community on what are the what are the solutions to make the re- make the renewable energy sources to integrate with the energy systems and 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 how to make this transition cost effectively and it is super motivating uh, to work with such talented team who are really focusing on these issues and and we have solutions to bring uh, that are based on on systematic analysis, data-based approach, and we are able to help our customers to find find a way find a way forward and and build their systems in a way that uh, that they can take advantage of the energy transition. Sara and her team at Vertzilla have made their Atlas of 100% Renewable Energy available to everyone on Vertzilla's website. You can go there and see all kinds of data and analysis about energy markets in a post-COVID world, and maybe you'll find some surprises, too. Check out the Atlas and see your optimal path at vertzilla.com atlas. That's W-A-R-T-S-I-L-A, vertzilla.com atlas.